You've probably noticed that uh, my topic today is the command of our Lord to love one another. I'll be basing the message on some key passages from the Gospel of John with insights from the rest of the New Testament, particularly from the epistles of John. The fact that John's writings on this subject are so key to our understanding of love reminds me of the story of a pastor who counseled and then married a young couple. Knowing that they were somewhat apprehensive about the enormity of making such a lifelong commitment to each other before God, this pastor sent them a congratulatory message by way of telegram. And in it, he wrote, Congratulations and best wishes from your pastor, 1 John 4, 17 and 18. And that passage reads, By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. He knew that passage would encourage them. Unfortunately, the telegram operator left off the number one in 1 John. Well, the couple were excited when they received the telegram from their pastor, and they immediately looked up the passage that he had given them. John 4, 17 and 18 reads, Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, <laughs> for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. Obviously, a little lesson that typos do have a big consequence sometimes. Nonetheless, the Apostle John has some important truths for us in his writings, both in the Gospel of John and his first two epistles, actually. And I want to focus on some of those this morning. I'm pretty sure that if I were to ask you what is the most important command that God has given us, most of you would readily say to love our God with all our heart. And if I were to ask you what is the second best or most important command he has given us, you would say to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know that because Jesus provided that answer when he was asked those questions. In fact, he said that all of God's law is based on those two commandments. So, for example, it's true that God gave Moses ten commandments on Mount Sinai, but the first four of those is all about loving God. And the remaining six are all about loving others. And it's not like that was news to Jesus' contemporaries, the Jews, we read in, in Luke 10, starting in verse 25, 
And behold, a lawyer, now this is not an attorney, uh, this is a, an expert in the Old Testament law. A lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And, Jesus, and he answered Jesus and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, this lawyer told Jesus. And so Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. What this lawyer seems to have missed, however, was the implications of Jesus' answer to that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, as if we can earn eternal life by doing things. Jesus said, do this and you will live. It seems likely that this lawyer may have thought that this was too simple, figuring that he had basically already kept those commands consistently. But to be sure he was correct on that, he asked for clarification. As we continue in Luke 10, verse 29, but he, this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is it I'm supposed to love in this way? Jesus replied by telling him what has become known as the parable of the Good Samaritan where he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed along the other side. But... That is, in contrast, a Samaritan, now we need to pause here, we need to recognize that a Samaritan, all Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Why? Because they were considered half-breeds, and that's, that's true. They had Israeli descent, but they had intermarried with the pagans around them and adopted a lot of those pagan uh, practices and worships and so on. Um, and so the Jews would actually avoid going through Samaria to go from, say, Galilee down to Judea and went way out of their way to not be even exposed to those unloved Samaritans, those rebellious Samaritans. So Jesus puts the hero of the story as a Samaritan. In fact, when you hear the name Samaritan, what do you think of? Good. That's not what they were thinking. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii 
two days' wages and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus asked the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer was no dummy. He said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus was saying that loving our neighbor as ourself, not to mention even loving God with all our heart, has to be taken to its logical conclusion. We are to love everyone immediately and sacrificially without prejudice, just as we would care for our own needs. Our love for them needs to be demonstrated by our compassionate action. This lawyer should have realized at that moment, or at least if he tried to live up to that standard over the uh, subsequent weeks, that none of us can do that. N meaning that none of us can earn eternal life. And that's even more important because none of us can love God with every fiber of our being either. That's an even higher standard. Anyone who comes to realize that he should be prompted to ask, he should be prompted to ask the more important question, if that's the case, is there any way I can avoid hell? Well, thankfully, there is one way, and only one way, by surrendering to Jesus Christ as our master and Savior, trusting in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection as the only basis for inheriting eternal life with God. But that's just the beginning, not the end. Jesus commands those he has saved to live a godly life by God's enablement. And he made it clear that the foundation of godly living is love. Particularly, loving fellow believers is how it would be uh, revealed, how it would be exercised. To understand what Jesus commands, however, we need to be clear on what he means by love. It's not what passes for love in our culture or in the media, or even what comes natural to us, necessarily. There are, it's often been pointed out that there are three uh, significant kinds of love, three different kinds of love. One of them is a selfish kind of love. The Greek word would be eros, from which we get our word erotic. Essentially, it means to love someone because of what he or she can give me. It's a self-serving type of love that is not mentioned in the New Testament at all. 
yet we see it all around us. And we often may be guilty of it ourselves. There's a second kind of love, a brotherly love. The Greek word is phileo, from which we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It doesn't mean city of brotherly shove, by the way. It's the city of brotherly love, from this word phileo. Phileo love prompts people to treat others affectionately, kindly, uh, to welcome them, befriend them. Essentially, it means to love because of the relationship that we have with them, and it's often tied with loyalty to them. This type of love is mentioned uh, commendably in several places in Scripture. Uh, For example, it's, it's usually translated as a love of the brethren when it's used, such as in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 1 Peter 1, 22. I'll get to those in a minute. But in both of those cases, it's followed by a command to love with agape love. What is agape love? That's the third type I want to highlight. Agape love is welcoming, hospitable, serving, and sacrificial. This kind of love is given to someone in spite of how lovable he is. It's the way God loves. For example, in Romans 5, Beginning in verse 6, we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because of our worth. It wasn't because we were lovely. In fact, we were the opposite. But God loved us. Why? Because he's loving. This is always the type of love that we are commanded in the New Testament to have for one another. But notice two other things about it. First, it's based on the character of the one doing the loving, not the character of the one being loved. And secondly, it's shown, it's demonstrated by taking the initiative. It starts in the heart, but it leads inevitably to action. Okay, well, if you haven't already done so, turn in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I'll begin with verses 34 and 35 which record that Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room the night before he was crucified, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Later that evening, he said, and it's recorded in John 15, starting in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. In these statements, Jesus explained to his disciples, and therefore to us, three things. At least three things I want to focus on today. First is the importance of loving one another. Secondly, the inspiration for our love for one another. And thirdly, the impact of our loving one another. The importance, the inspiration, and the impact. First, the importance of loving one another. Notice that Jesus says in each of these passages that this is a commandment. The word here means it's an order, not a suggestion. Here he is with his disciples celebrating the Passover, and he astonishes them by showing them they need to serve each other and that one of them will betray him. And then he tells them he's going away, and while he's away, they should be true to him and bear much fruit. And in the midst of all that, he orders them several times to love each other, to love each other. This is more specific than the general command to love others as ourselves. This is directed specifically at loving fellow Christians, our church colleagues. Galatians 6 gives us a similar command, focusing on our general duty to fellow Christians. Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10, say, and, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, your fellow believers. The foundation of that doing good to fellow believers is the command to love them with agape love. The Apostle John reminds the readers of his first two epistles that this command is foundational. In 1 John 3, you might want to keep a finger in 1 John and another one in the Gospel of John. Uh, I won't ask you to do more than 10, so you've got enough fingers. <laughs> but we're going to be going back and forth. 1 John 3, verse 11 for this is the message which we have heard from the beginning. That is, going all the way back to the teachings of Christ. That we should love one another. And then later in 1 John 3, verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he, Jesus, commanded us. And then in 2 John chapter 1, verse 5, Now I ask you, lady, 
not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. This was so critical a concept among, that among his last words to his disciples, Jesus repeated it several times, and John did the same thing, repeating it several times in his epistles. It's very important that we love one another. Then secondly, consider the inspiration for our love for one another. First of all, we are to follow the example of Christ. Christ himself is our inspiration. Back in John 13, verse 34, he says, love one another even as I have loved you. And he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. John 15, 12, love one another just as I have loved you. John makes that same point in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John, uh, 1 John 4, 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means he satisfied God's wrath against our sin. Verse 11, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Likewise, we see the importance of Christ's loving example in the command to husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So in order to love one another as Jesus command, commanded, we need to follow his example. But we also, secondly, need to rely on the power of Jesus. We just read from John 15 where Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This is my command, that you love one another. God chooses, equips, and empowers us to obey him. If he commands it, he enables and empowers us to obey it. And we can ask in faith when we ask for the ability to do it. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament. For, oh, this is where another finger comes in, by the way. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, 11 through 12. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. The driving energy there is the Lord himself allowing us, enabling us, equipping us to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Now as to the love of the brethren, phileo, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another with agape love. 1 Peter 
since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, o love, therefore fervently agape love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. We know we can fervently love one another from the heart because God has caused us to be born again through an imperishable, living, and enduring seed, the word of God. He's the one working in us and through us. And a key means he does that is the Holy Spirit helping us to understand and apply Scripture to our lives. Well, back to 1 John. In chapter 3, beginning of verse 13, we read, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, that is, not those things only, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth. Do you see the connection? Loving the brethren with agape love is evidence both to us and to the world that we're saved. We shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us because of Christ, but genuine Christians love genuine Christians because God has transformed us and loves through us. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not, does not love does not know God, for God is love. Again, we're able to see the love of one another. We're able to see that because God saved us by demonstrating his great undeserved love for us, and now enables us and inspires us to do the same. That's evidence that we are saved. John continues in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So again, if we genuinely love one another, that's evidence that we're saved. Loving each other as we should is possible only by God's power to transform us. It shouldn't be surprising then that the fruit that is the end result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to produce God's character in us, the foundation of which is what? Love. 
And notice that this kind of love is not motivated by our emotions. Yes, it can produce great joy, but sometimes demonstrating godly love is hard to do in the moment. Indeed, sometimes we need to demonstrate this kind of love even when we are in times of sorrow or grief. Living the Christian life is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ living his life through us. So Jesus stressed the importance of loving the brethren and what inspires us to love the brethren. Then thirdly, the impact of our loving one another. Scripture indicates at least three impacts. First, it's evangelistic. Evangelistic. Notice that Jesus explained in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world will notice Christ's likeness because it stands out in such stark contrast to worldliness. So if they see Christ in us, that may prompt them to wonder what makes this guy tick. They may not all believe, but God can use our supernatural love tangibly expressed for one another to open the eyes and soften the heart of some so that they're open to the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who gives us that kind of love. A second impact is that our love for one another multiplies our love for one another. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. When you show agape love to a spiritual brother or sister, they're prompted to follow your example. And like a nuclear chain reaction, this is an explosion of love expressed tangibly to one another. It's fortunately, it's a good explosion, not an uncontrolled one. Third impact is that our love for one another causes us to be more forgiving and gracious. Forgiving and gracious. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that when someone sins, the loving thing to do is to cover it over like sweeping it under the rug, pretending it never happened. God never does that. We have many admonitions in Scripture to deal with sin head on. But they're premised on our speaking the truth in love. It's not loving to allow a brother or sister get mired deeper and deeper in sin. The loving thing to do is to help them in humble persistence to be restored to fellowship with Christ and with the brethren. Our love for them will prompt us to forgive them of any personal offense they might have committed against us. But that's not enough. 
we need to take the initiative to help them be restored, freed from sin. That's what Jesus did for us, and he calls us to follow his example. Sometimes the tough love that our brother or sister needs is also tough on us. But Jesus' agape love is sacrificial. Doing what's right, not what's expedient or convenient. It's like the Good Samaritan, but to the next level. So Jesus commanded us to show agape love to our fellow believers, indicating the critical importance of doing so, uh, what will inspire us to do so, and what the impact will be. The Apostle John makes this very practical in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 19, which reads, We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. Now, if you're anything like me, all of this sounds good, logical, and when it really comes down to it, it's nothing new. We're very familiar with this command to love one another, perhaps too familiar. But when I ask myself if I consistently demonstrate that kind of sacrificial love for you, I readily see that I do not. I too easily succumb to the temptation to lower the standard by doing what's convenient or easier for me rather than doing what Christ would do. More critically, those choices of mine indicate that my heart's not always where it should be. Why do I, why do I lose sight of the importance of loving my dear brothers and sisters in Christ? Why am I not inspired by the example of Christ and his loving work in my life and go and do likewise? And why am I not captivated by the impact that loving the brethren in this way would have on all of us and even on unbelievers. I need to continue wrestling with those questions, and I expect that you do too. I'd like to close this portion of the service with an extended time of prayer in which all of us seek the heart of the Lord in this matter. I'll begin it and then pause for several times of silent prayer, interspersed with some scripture passages, allowing you to reflect on these things in your own heart before God. Perhaps there are some, some things you need to confess to him. Perhaps you need to commit in your heart to love some specific, some specific people as Christ would. Perhaps you need to ask God to expose things in your heart that should not be there. I'll close the time in prayer in a few minutes, after which we'll sing again of our thanks to God, followed by some baptisms.
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, have free reign in our hearts through your Spirit during these moments. Lead each of us to a greater awareness of anything in us that is hindering our loving you and loving our fellow Christians with your unconditional, sacrificial love. Strengthen us with supernatural resolve and the power of your Spirit to put off our selfishness and to put on your mind and heart. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Lord, we pray along with King David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. By your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, work in us so that the world will know that you are both Savior and Lord. May all glory and honor be yours forever. Amen.